if you brought your copy of God's Word with you, open to Matthew chapter 5 with me this morning. We're going to continue in our study through the Sermon on the Mount and the beginning there with the Beatitudes. The first four Beatitudes that we have looked at thus far have dealt with the transformation of the inner man, um, which is what the gospel of God does when it saves a lost soul. It transforms the inner man by conforming the new child of God into the uh, image of Christ in a progressive way throughout their sojourning, throughout their sojourning here on this earth, so that we can reflect the glorious image and nature and character of our Savior, Jesus Christ, to the praise of God. Reminded me of the old hymn that we sometimes sing still on occasion that tells us that we once were lost but now are found. We were blind but now we see. And so the, the amazing transformation that happens in the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is we go from death to life, from not seeing to seeing, from lost to foundness, a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light in his Son. And this is how God shows us that we are truly poor in spirit because we were truly separated from and apart from his love. We were lost. We were blind. He was the one that found us. And God graciously then enabled us to mourn over our sin as, as we've discovered that we have been sinning against a holy God, that the conscience that was on the soul came from the holy God who made us to be in his image. And we feel helpless, completely helpless, without his uh, free forgiveness of sins. You come to a place where you recognize that without God and his love and the free forgiveness of sins, I am done for. And this is when God promises us this gift, this gift of a new heart that came by means of the promise of the new covenant, by means of the promised Holy Spirit, where we grow in our glad submission to the will of God on a daily basis. Sometimes we just sang the song that says, you know, sin has lost its grip on me. And sometimes we think, well, it may have lost its grip, but it hadn't let go yet. <laughs> right? It hadn't let go completely. It may have lost its grip, like its complete grip, but sometimes it seems like it hadn't let go. And so we continually walk by the Spirit and put to death the deeds of the flesh and demonstrate that God did something in our hearts because we now desire from our hearts to be willing to be pleasing to God. A glad submission. He makes us meek, gentle in our lives. And our affections thus have been changed and no longer are we desiring our own interest, our own will. We are actually have a, a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that we knew not of. That completely came by the gift of God by means of his Holy Spirit. Isn't that great? These are the beatitudes that we've been looking at thus far. And as good as all of that is, um, which it is obviously very good, the Apostle Paul would let us know that this is that very work that God is in the business of doing within the child and children of God. We know this from the Philippians 2 passage. God is the one, see right here, God is at what? He's at work, where? In you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And this is why we are then called, as, as a result of this, we are then called to continue to work it out. You know, I want you to think of the Beatitudes, perhaps, um, as, as a beautiful um, image 
it's almost like it's a parable unto itself, these Beatitudes. You know, as the Apostle Paul told us in the book of Ephesians, um, that our salvation is not by works, lest any man boast. He tells us in Ephesians 2.10 that we are God's poema. His, we are his craftsmanship. This Greek word for, for poema is oftentimes used of a, an artisan's canvas. And an artisan will start with a blank canvas. And upon this blank canvas, he makes a glorious and beautiful painting that then he puts on display. And the word of God is saying that we are God's poema. We are God's canvas. He saves us and, and we become the canvas upon which he starts working. And then he puts us on his mantle. He puts us on display in life. And he says, look at my son, look at my daughter. And it seems to me as we work our way through these beatitudes that these are the brushing strokes of our God the Father as he is creating this beautiful poema. These beatitudes that we've been looking at are brush strokes that, are, that give description and definition and contours to the very work that God is doing in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. These are the strokes of his craftsmanship in your life. This is the image into which he has promised to conform us and make us so that his children genuinely are poor of spirit. We recognize that apart from him we have nothing and thus we have mourned over our sin and when we continue to sin we mourn over it continually. We know that we're positionally justified but we mourn over our sins. Why? Because these are the brush strokes, these are the contours in how God is making us these beautiful images to put us on display in the world to say, look at my kids. This is what amazing grace actually does in the life of the children of God. It makes them gentle. It makes them meek. Not, not weak, but meek and gentle. Strong in the hands of God. Bold with convictions to be able to stand for truth when needed. But gentle in doing so. And the, the brush strokes of, of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. So when we look at the Beatitudes, I think we see in them a beautiful, the beautiful work that the artisan God the Father does in our lives as he is conforming us more into the image of Jesus Christ. And this is why I believe these Beatitudes are, what are perfectly reflecting of what genuine repentance looks like. And so, as John the Baptist would say, he would say what? Continue to bear fruit that's in keeping with repentance. And so we see even right here in this Philippians 2 passage that we're all very, very familiar with. This is nothing new to any of us at all. But as we're called to work out our salvation because it's God who's at work within us, notice the very next thing, verse 14, it impacts the life. Do all things without looking in particular ways. Because these aren't the ways that the children of God are to look like. These aren't the, the strokes of the brush of the artisan in your life and how he's conforming you to look more like the image of his son, Jesus Christ. So we do things without grumbling. We do things without disputing. So that we can be those who are blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation that we are currently living in. Would you say it's perverse? I've never seen it more perverse in my entire life. And I have a feeling that in another 50 years from now it's going to look even worse. Come soon, Lord Jesus. We are to actually, it says right here, shine as lights in the world. We are to shine, we, this is why we're working it out. 
God's at work in us. I believe, as I said, the Beatitudes are these beautiful strokes that he's working within us. This is what he's conforming us to look like, the image of his son. And so we are to shine as lights in the world in this perverse generation in which we lived. And we, and we do this by holding fast the word of life. We shine bright as lights in the world, not by simply being kind and good for goodness sake. We do it by holding fast the word of life. We do it by holding fast to the word of God and not compromising on what God's word says. Have you noticed how the church and our culture seems to be all the more conformed into the image of worldliness? Instead of the culture being conformed into the image of God's word. God's people, those who have truly repented of their sin, and the Beatitudes is that which looks like a portrait of a, of a story of the life of the child of God, they are going to be those who are going to hold fast the word of God, the word of life, so that in the day of Christ they will have reason to boast. Because the word of God, those who went out running and sharing the word of God and preaching the gospel did not do so in vain. Isn't this good? And I, think, I, want, I want you to think about the Beatitudes in this way, as, as the artisan's brushstrokes. And so what that means is to the degree that we look at these Beatitudes, as we look into the mirror of God's Word, this is like a mirror in which we look. The degree to which we look into the mirror of God's Word and we see these brushstrokes, these Beatitudes, we need to be asking ourselves, is this true of me? Is this what I'm seeing in me? Am I truly reflecting an individual who's poor in spirit? Why? Because I have a new master and a new Lord. It's not about me anymore. It's all about him. Am I still reflecting this? So we look into these Beatitudes and we study them as we've been doing over this past month so that we, God's children, can do this. We can see where we have greater need to continue working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Why? So that God's name is greatly praised in the nations. Right here in Jinx, Oklahoma or wherever you may live in the surrounding areas. Amen? I mean, this is, this, is, this is what it's about after all. Isn't that good? The Word of God is so rich and it's so contextualized for our own lives and, our, and, and where we are right here today. And so in like fashion, the next four Beatitudes are going to continue showing us what true repentance looks like in action, in living color through the life of those seeking to work out their salvation, to those who have truly repented and have come to faith in God, who are truly seeking to shine as lights in this world for the glory of God. So I have a, have a um, sobriety of spirit this morning as we, no, as we look together this morning at the next three, from verses 7, 8, and 9. Because these three um, can become a little bit, um, can perhaps make us a little bit more uncomfortable. Look at verse 7 with me. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy is from a Greek word, el eo. I'm impressed with myself. <laughs> to show kindness or concern for someone in serious need. But notice, this is, this is from Lou and Nida. 
But I really like the, uh, the way the, the TDNT, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, adds a little bit of contour to this. Notice what it says. Right here it says, in Greek, ele, eleos, which is from eleo, same word, is, it's, a, um, it's a pathos, i.e. it's the emotion aroused by contact with an affliction which comes undeservedly on, uh, on someone else. It's this pathos, it's, this, it's the arousal of mercy, is this arousal of this emotion that one would have towards somebody else who is undeserving of the kindness, of the mercy that would be shown to them. So the one receiving such kindness was by no means owed such a favor at all. And so it lets us know that mercy is it's a benevolence that flows from the heart towards someone else that causes someone, a merciful person, blessed are those who are merciful, that causes one to show unmerited kindness towards other people. Which is why the Bible describes God's actions toward us, a sinful and fallen humanity, as being nothing less than a divine demonstration of His mercy. There's a very familiar passage that we're perhaps familiar with in Romans chapter 9 that articulates this very particularly. In this Roman 9 passage, it's dealing with the mercy of God. And notice what the Apostle Paul says with regard to mercy and God. In verse, chapter 9, verse 10, he says, And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had, done, had not done anything good or bad, so that the purpose of God according to his choice would stand... Not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older one shall serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So there seems to be some kind of an indication here with regard to these two boys, these two twins. They were not yet born. They hadn't done anything good or bad. And yet at the same time, while they were still in the womb, they hadn't been born they haven't done anything good or bad, so, but in order to show that, God's, that God has something to do with having a determinative choice here, he, it's already saying of one I loved, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. And so the obvious question becomes what verse 14 deals with. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? That just doesn't seem what? Fair. There is there's, there's this um, fairness doctrine that the American church is very rooted into. That everything has to be fair because it's a democracy after all. Well, the king from heaven, he rules from a theocracy. And he does whatsoever he pleases. Um, he's, not, he's not like Elon's been doing on his Twitter, sending out polls and saying, hey, what, what do you think? Should I do this or not? Yes or no? You know, and, and so people are responding yes or no. And God doesn't rule like that. He's not ruling in some kind of a democracy. But we tend to not think this is very fair. And they perhaps were thinking similar thoughts back then 2,000 years ago. Should we say that God's unrighteous then? And the Spirit of God through the, the Apostle Paul says, May it never be because there is no unrighteousness with God. Because God said to Moses, I will have mercy, same word, 
on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it, it does not depend on the one who wills or the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. So God has the ability to distribute mercy. He has this, this, um, this arousal within the heart, this sense of compassion, this undeserved uh, favor that he can show towards whomever he pleases because he's God. And is there any unrighteousness in God if he says, I love the one and I didn't perhaps love the other one? The answer from the Spirit of God was, no, there's, there, that's not the case because we know there's no unrighteousness with God. He does all things, he does all things well. God can have mercy on whom he has mercy and compassion on whom he has compassion. And notice how Paul continues here in verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up. Pharaoh, it was for this very purpose that I, God, raised you up in order to demonstrate my power in you. Pharaoh was used by God in such a powerful way to demonstrate to the non-looking world that there's only one God of heaven and earth and thus he decimated all the gods of the nation of Egypt. And so by the time the, the nation of Israel made its way into, as they were making their way across the Jordan into the promised land, um, it says, we've, we've heard about you. Well, how, did they hear, how have they already heard, heard about them? Well, they've heard about them because the mighty deeds of God had gone forth already. Runners were coming to and fro, and he was de demonstrating his power through Pharaoh in order that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, verse 18, God has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. And again, in this context, in Romans 9 context, Paul is showing how God has chosen to show mercy and compassion on whom he desires, which lets us know that God's amazing saving grace flows first from my heart of mercy, and that to those who are in serious need. And I think it goes without saying that all people are in serious need of salvation. How about you? But not all people seem to recognize that and seem that, see that in the same way. Not all people recognize the seriousness of their need to be saved from the penalty of their sins. And when presented with the gospel, sometimes they even scoff or mock and laugh. Which lets us know that their spiritual eyes are still blinded and in need of being opened. And thus, what do we do? Well, of course, we ridicule them and we judge them for being the sinners that they are, right? No, we are those who show mercy. We are those who show mercy by continually letting our light shine before men in such a way that they may glorify God in the day of his visitation. We continue to show mercy to those who are lost. Our mercy and God's mercy are different. Our mercy doesn't open the eyes of God. Blind, blind spiritual eyes. Our mercy is a pathway through the sharing of the gospel by which God can then open the eyes of blind, sinful human hearts. We continue to show mercy. And it seems to me that what the Beatitude is, is letting us know when it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy is that God is looking to build an army of agents of mercy who can go out into this world and be merciful 
and put on display the very thing that God himself does in a more perfect way through their lives and through the sharing of the gospel so that lost people can be saved. You would think that perhaps Jesus came with a mission of mercy to seek and to save that which is lost. How about you? That's what I'm believing that the word of God is all about. Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. Last time I checked, there's not one of us in here this morning who understands who, say, who's, who, who are the elect or who aren't the elect. Not a one of us knows. And so from our perspective, everybody is in need of mercy. Everybody is in need of us to be merciful and to share the gospel with whosoever will and with all people everywhere and pleading with them to come and to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. God wants you to be an agent of mercy as you are living your life. Amen? The application of said living isn't always the same from one life to the next, however. There have been on occasion those within the church who have been called to suffer and to give their last full measure for the gospel. We know of those. We've, we've referred to them as martyrs within the church. We suffer perhaps in the sharing of our faith to currently a lesser degree than some of them have had to uh, as they gave their last full measure. But there is a time coming in the church where we need to be perhaps ready to do and do uh, similarly as they did and I was thinking thinking of this in the churches there in the book of Revelation I just wanted to share with you one here as we think of the need to be mer agents of mercy that some of the artisan strokes in our lives is that if we don't see ourselves becoming more merciful like God was mercy and having an arousal of compassion for people who are in need of the free forgiveness of sins, and we can't be motivated and moved in their direction. Instead, we become agents of judgment. It says mercy triumphs over judgment. We, we didn't, God didn't save us to make us his agents of judgment on this earth and agents of condemnation upon this earth. He saved us to make us agents of mercy. Listen, Jesus is going to come back again with the sword in his mouth. He, he can take care of the judgment part. He's got that, he's got that covered. He needs us to be agents of mercy. Here in Revelation 2, do not fear what you are about to suffer. There's going to come a time in, on this earth if you're in the persuasion of the pre-wrath movement such as myself, so bear with me here if you're not. Um, there's going to be a time that those within the church are going to need to face their greatest adversary before the um, rapturing of the church. So don't fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will never be hurt by the second death. Listen, we're called to be agents of mercy, and if we find ourselves perhaps on this planet going through this time of what's known as the Great Tribulation, and you get called on to suffer in a particular way that looks something like this, remember... Be an agent of mercy. Preach the gospel all the way to the end. Because those who persevere and overcome they will, will never be hurt by the second death. 
The second death, those who have rejected the gospel, those who reject God, those who, who have turned their backs on him, who did not have their spiritual eyes opened, there's a, a second death. There's a, they're going to have a, a resurrection and then uh, cast into a lake of fire forever and ever and ever. This second death will never hurt those who are the children of God. Be agents of mercy before it's too late. Amen? Notice the end of verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This, um, <clears throat> this verb here, shall receive mercy, is in a future tense, and it indicates that the effects of God's mercy shown you in Christ Jesus has its ultimate application for us ultimately when we see God. God's showing of mercy wasn't just a one-time act that brought us near to him. It's an ever-active part of our daily lives where God is perpetually showing himself to be a God of mercy to us, a God of great compassion and care. Like I said, um, sin may have lost its grip on me, but it perhaps hasn't completely let go. And we're in need of daily mercy and grace and a cleansing, a daily forgiveness of sins against God. Let's continually work out our salvation. Let's continually work at becoming these agents of mercy for God toward those who are in the greatest need of all, those who need a Savior. MacArthur said, If we have received from a holy God unlimited mercy that cancels our unpayable debt of sin, we who had no righteousness but were poor in spirit, mourning over our load of sin and beggarly, helpless condition, wretched and doomed, meek before Almighty God, hungry and hunger and thirst for a righteousness we did not have and could not attain, it surely follows that we should be merciful to others. Amen and amen. And then verse 8, this next beautiful contour of the strokes of the artisan's hand in our lives. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure is translating a Greek word, katharos, which means to pertain, uh, to, pertaining to being free from moral guilt, pure, free from sin. Are you starting to see a little bit of a problem here? Blessed are the pure in heart. Pure in heart. Let me just read a few verses for you with what the Word of God says relative to the man's heart. In Genesis 6-5, Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can know it? Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adultery, sexual immoralities, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. Psalm, 23, Psalm 24, 3, who may ascend into the mountain of Yahweh and who may rise to his holy place? He who has innocent hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to, to worthlessness or his soul to deceit. Blessed are the pure in heart, those who have a heart that is completely free from moral guilt and free from sin. Now, in complete contrast to the outward, superficial, and 
hypocritical religion of the scribes and Pharisees, we see Jesus here is aiming clearly at the heart. It's not what's on the outside of the cup that defiles a man, it's what's on the inside. It's the the core of his being that, that needs to be free from sin, that needs to be free from moral guilt, that needs to be pure. And the inner man, the heart, is one's seat of emotions, motives, attitude. It's the core of our personality, our identity. It's the mind of the matter. It's what we think. It's our thoughts. It's the will of man. It's the inner sanctum of one's self. It's the heart. This is the place where God requires purity, to be free from moral guilt, to be free from sin of any kind. So you tell me, truly, is there any person capable of being pure in heart? Anyone? Is there any man that can be pure of heart in this regard? Now, the obvious answer is no. So this beatitude is letting us see that what true repentance does in the life of the child of God, one of the beautiful contours of the artisan's brushstroke in your life is that he has indeed given you a new heart. And I think when we look at it just slowly, just briefly, but slowly this way, it lets us know that this transformation of heart is completely out of the realm of our own doing. That there's truly nothing we could have ever done. And so we, we never want to get that cart before the horse. That as we're those who are to be working out our salvation, that continual perpetual work of our salvation It's just simply the fruit of this beautiful root of justification that God has done alone. It leaves us, this beatitude leaves us in a place that says, do do I truly hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do I truly have a heart that desires to be pure, free from moral guilt before God, free from sin before the holy, true, and only living God? Because this is something that only God can do. Notice the end of verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they shall see God. They shall see God. And it's at the moment of genuine repentance and faith when God graciously adopts us into his family, his forever family, by the means of divine imputation. (laughs) Oh, glorious imputation, right? Can you you feel it Just, just for a moment? Can you feel that feeling of, it kind of reminds us of what being poor in spirit must truly feel like, being completely helpless. The need for having a pure heart like this, to be able to see God. We want to be in, we want to be in the kingdom of Christ, and so the entrance through there is repentance. It's a brokenness, it's a poorness of spirit that we enabled you to mourn over your sin. These are the contours of the life of the, ch- of the child of God. Again, MacArthur said, purity of heart cleanses the eyes of the soul, so that, so that God becomes visible. That then enables us to freely, freely live in such a way that is pleasing to God from the heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. And then number nine, verse nine, excuse me, not number nine, verse nine. I really like this one. This, this is a beautiful brushstroke from God the Father into your life. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So what's needed here is a proper understanding of what a peacemaker is, right? 
Now, you've heard of the peacemaker's ministry where you have brothers at odds with each other and they come in and they try to settle and resolve their differences and make for peace. But I think that what the Beatitude is talking about here is something significantly different and at a deeper level than that. I mean, do you think that just perhaps this peacemaking is something greater than the temporal absence of conflict and strife? Uh, I, that's what I'm leaning towards. Now, as a matter of fact, I'm going to say absolutely. That's exactly what it is. This, this is the peacemaking that Jesus is speaking of here. It has everything to do with um, the demonstration and the, the, um, the preaching of mercy and righteousness, of mourning, of being those who seek to be peacemakers on behalf of God the Father. Who, who in this world is at peace with God? Think about that. Who in this world can be at peace with God? Well, those who have clean hands and a pure heart. The pure in heart are going to be those who see God, right? So to be a peacemaker, God is going to conform you into such a way and mold and shape your life in such a fashion that you are going to be a fisher for men, is maybe another way of saying that. You're going to seek to be a peacemaker on behalf of God, of trying to make peace between God and men through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Blessed are those peacemakers. And notice, they're the ones that are going to be called sons of God. These are the ones, that these sons and daughters of God who need to let their light shine in this perverse generation in which we are living. So in practice, it would seem that genuine repentance is actually just simply a call to discipleship whereby following Jesus puts you on the path of being a lifelong peacemaker. One who fishes for the souls of lost men and women. And as such, a peacemaker, while putting us at odds with this world, it makes us pillars for truth and it makes us pillars for righteousness. Notice again the end of verse 9. If you truly have identified yourself as a son or a daughter of God, are you going to look different in the culture in which you live, or aren't you? We are going to absolutely be those that are going to look different in the world in which we live, in the surest way we can go about continuing the practice of being peacemakers and trying to be those who are proclaimers of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to be those who are filled with mercy and compassion for those who need the Lord. Peacemaking is the genuine fruit of repentance. Whenever it said, go and bear fruit in keeping with repentance, it seems to me that peacemaking is listed here in these Beatitudes as one of the brushstrokes from the artisan's hand, from God's hand, making us this beautiful poema. So in bearing fruit and keeping with repentance, peacemaking ought to be and will be a part of the life of the child of God. And the reason this gets a little bit difficult to perhaps talk about is that sometimes peacemaking, that fishing for men, isn't a part of our normative Christian living. We're, we're kind of willing to do it if, if perhaps we sense that a door gets opened and it's kind of an obvious thing and it's right there and it's ever before us. But when it comes to actually trying to work this out and to try to become 
somewhat more of a fisher for men as a disciple of the Lord and following him. And it sometimes is one of those less practiced things in the life of the child of God. But right here it sits in the Beatitudes. Happy are those. Blessed are those. Contented, the most contented people on planet earth are those who actually understand themselves and identify themselves as being sons and daughters of the Most High God. And they are going to be those who are peacemakers while sojourning here on planet earth. Are you following me so far? So some of these contours and strokes of the artisan's brush in our lives, they challenge us, do they not? And this is why I began this sermon by talking about that beautiful passage there in Philippians chapter 2. I'm saying work out your salvation. You're not working for it. You're not earning anything. It's a free gift of God, but you're just working it out. And God in his word here is letting us know that a part of repentance is going to be the conforming us into being peacemakers, being fishers of men. You've heard me say it before. People need the Lord. Amen? And they need us to have to be those with beautiful feet who will be willing to stand in the gap. I told you being gentle and meek wasn't equated to being weak. The sons and daughters of God have to have some grit. They have to have some fortitude to stand and to speak for truth. And the most difficult thing is, is because when you're in a culture, you're surrounded by friends and everybody's kind of ebbed a little bit this way and standing really for the truth of God's word kind of starts to feel a little bit like a rub and it's going to be uncomfortable and it's, I, they, I, might, I might lose, some, might lose some, some gravitas with some friends or whatever it may be and so we kind of will acquiesce a little bit and we give into that, that cultural peer pressure thing. I want to encourage you more than ever, listen, if you don't see, if you don't see the, the erosion and the corruption of the culture in which you're living escalating at a pace that you've probably never seen before in the entirety of your life, if you don't see that, then I'm going to ask you to check your spiritual pulse because it's happening at a very rapid pace. But what I want you to know is that people need the Lord, and God has chosen to make you an agent of mercy, one who can demonstrate what it looks like to be poor of spirit, to come before God humbly. People need to see the likes of you standing for truth every single day of the week. So don't just sometimes wait for God to perhaps um, crack the door. Sometimes you might want to give it a little bit of a nudge. Just go ahead and give it a little, you know, a little elbow to see if you can't get your way into that conversation. And you might be surprised at what the Spirit of God can do when we do that. Amen? Well, next week we're going to finish up these Beatitudes. And, um, and I pray that we will look at these Beatitudes in a very different way than perhaps we've looked at them before. And see that these are the very strokes of how God the Father is conforming us into the life of his Son. And so the degree to which we look into these Beatitudes and we don't see a good reflection of ourselves therein, it doesn't mean that we're not saved. It just means that we need to repent, perhaps, of some daily sins, of having some other interests greater than God's interest, and ask God to be gracious to us and to continue working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Amen? And if you're here this morning and you've yet to truly put your faith in Jesus Christ alone and you're perhaps listening to these beatitudes and we go back and we rehearse them and we add some more to them over the course of these weeks and you're saying I don't look like any of this at all none of this looks like anything related to my life whatsoever I'd love to talk to you about what it means to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ as would any of the elders in this church that's why we're here
People need the Lord. So if you sense that in your heart this morning, come find one of us. We'd love to talk with you. Let's pray. Father, to your name we give thanks and praise. And, and Father,